when I was making the decision about what I wanted to do next, I really wanted to be in a place where I could see how that I could build something. That's the voice of John Houston, President and Chief Executive Officer of Arvinus and BioCT Entrepreneur of the Year. Listen in now to hear my conversation with John Houston and his vision for Arvinus. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. Today I'm speaking with John Houston, President and CEO at Arvinus. John, how'd you find yourself here at Arvinus? Well, it's an interesting story. I'd, um, well, for me anyway. <laughs> I spent uh, 18, 19 years at Bristol Myers Squibb, uh, mainly based in Connecticut. I had staff and various other BMS sites. Um, and it got to a point where the company had made a decision to start to move um, the, certainly the Wallingford site in Connecticut to Boston and to staff into New Jersey. And I was very focused on helping that happen and, uh, and making sure the staff were getting uh, good roles and good positions in these other sites. But then I had the decision to make, do I want to move? And I decided I didn't. I really thought, yeah, I like living in Connecticut. I want to stay in Connecticut. And so I took some time off to enjoy myself, which I did. Uh, and then started looking around at where other opportunities might be. And luckily, uh, met Tim Shannon and uh, Craig Cruz, um, and they told me about this wonderful opportunity at Arvinus, ostensibly to be the, the chief scientific officer. And so I met them, listened to the story about the company, what they were trying to achieve, heard about the platform, met the scientists, and at the end of that, I thought, my goodness, what a great opportunity. And so that's, that's why I joined Arvinus. So I thought, fantastic location for me. But brilliant science, great technology, and a wonderful uh, leadership team. So when you look back at that, how do you feel about your decision? It, well, I, it, it's one of these things where you end up seeing something very obvious. I wish I'd done it earlier. <laughs> um, but if I'd done it earlier, I may have not have got this, this particular opportunity. So I'm glad I did it. It's worked out, obviously, in the last uh, just under two years uh, remarkably well, both for myself and uh, the company's done very well. So it was... As it turns out, it was a really great decision for myself. Can you remember when you were eight or nine? Can you remember what you told your mom and dad you wanted to be when you grew oh, up? Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I was, I was absolutely determined to be an astronaut. That was, you know, at, at that time, uh, it was around the time of the, the Apollo missions. Uh, uh, we hadn't quite landed on the moon, but we were just about to do it. Uh, I was a bit, a bit, a bit younger for that. Uh, but, um, but when the, the, uh, the first landing on the moon occurred... And I was living in Scotland, obviously, and I, my, my dad stayed up to, to let me watch it on TV. It was black and white and all the crackly noise that was coming from the microphones. And I was absolutely determined when that happened. I'm definitely going to be an astronaut. Um, and, of course, that lasted for about a year. And then I thought, no, I'll probably end up being a soccer player. Um, <laughs> it's probably more manageable. Um, but actually, what, what I found, I had a real passion for understanding the science. And, and so the understanding astronomy, how the stars work, I've, I was really feeling very inquisitive about the world. And I think that led me into science. Uh, so I enjoyed science at high school. And clearly that's what I wanted to be uh, um, when, when I moved into to university. But the, the, the kernel for that was uh, all the moon landing and the astronauts. And that grabbed everybody's attention when they were kids at the, between 9 and 13 at that time. That tells you what age I am now. Me too. <laughs> and then some. So I, uh, two things I heard from that were uh, I was fascinated by science. And then the other part I heard, when I thought about the soccer part, because my son's a soccer player, I yeah. thought soccer is about teamwork largely. There's other sports that emphasize individual skills more. But so 
Is there something about teamwork and something about science that made this all come together? It's a a really interesting question because science um, and scientists don't naturally lend themselves to teams. Uh, When I first got into science and and was doing my PhD and doing postdocs over in Scotland, it's very individual. You're in a lab, there's other people in the lab, you usually have a uh, a lead professor who's you know driving the grants who, that's their interest and you're doing some aspect of that work there wasn't much certainly in my experience there wasn't much in the way of teamwork you did your work you worked with your supervisor to get things that might be published um, so I, my first several years both in PhD and postdoc I didn't get a sense of team I got a sense of individuality driving your own science making sure you published beating the competition my first sense of science in a team was when I joined Glaxo down in London. And then immediately it was in the scientific lab where you were part of a team, you had a function, but you were connected to other parts of that process. And as I grew up as a scientist within the Glaxo environment, you realized you were part of a bigger R&D process and the whole process only worked because it was a team. Um, so yeah, I, I like that aspect. I like the fact that uh, in to make medicines, you have to have groups of people that come together and know what part of their process needs to work to hand over to the next part. But yeah, initially, scientists aren't naturally designed to be in teams. They're designed as very individual thinkers, and their science is very individualized. But then you go into a context like a big pharma company, and you have to be part of a team. Very interesting. So I imagine that's a learning process to some degree. I mean, leaders are naturally born. I understand that too. But can you say anything about what you learned about how to manage and lead? What did you learn about yourself? What did you learn about what worked, what didn't work over the years? Yeah, and I was lucky when I joined Glaxo, relatively quickly I was given some kind of supervisory experience. Um, and I did like it. I like working with people and I like giving advice. What I found out is that giving advice uh, can be a double-edged sword. So there's giving advice and there's telling people things. Um, and I learned pretty quickly that people don't really respond to being told stuff. Uh, they like being in a dialogue and having things explained. And so I think I learned pretty quickly as a supervisor, um, getting people engaged, getting people excited about the work, and also listening to their ideas is the best way to manage your team. And I've tried to do that all, all through my career. I've always tried to surround myself with people who are either smarter than me or know things better than me. And what I add to them is some kind of environment where they can perform really well. And for me, that's always been a win-win. You know, if you get a team that likes working together and you get some of the smart scientists working together and you allow them to get headroom and a lot of credit for what they're doing, they win. I win because I've just created that for them. <laughs> um, so I've tried to do that in every environment. And But the first lessons I got were, were those first supervisory experiences where I was trying to explain and tell people. And you can see, hmm, I know that already. Why are you telling me? Um, and so I learned that really rapidly. Uh, listen to, listen to the staff that you have, the people you're going to be supervising. Create the right environment for them to be successful. What were you hoping you could achieve here that you might not be able to achieve in another company? You had, I'm sure, lots of opportunities to think about in that interregnum between... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um, when I was making the decision about what I wanted to do next, I really wanted to be in a place where I could see how that I could build something. Um, and the opportunity here at Venus was clearly there to build something. There was a platform technology that was unique. Uh, there was an ability to create medicines in a number of different disease areas. And there was the opportunity to build a team. 
so all of those ticked the box for me in terms of the things I wanted to do next. Um, I also wanted to get away from, and this is I'm not trying to be negative about big pharma because I, you know, I've enjoyed the, 20, you know, the twenty-eight to thirty years, uh, twenty-eight thirty years I was there, but I wanted to get away from some of the kind of the overlay of governance, the overlay of um, elongated decision making, into an environment where decision making can occur in the day or less. Uh, I want to get into a situation where people were not permission seeking, but saying, look what I did. And I have to say, from the first day I was here, that's what was happening. People were coming up to say, hey, look, look what I did. Look, I did this yesterday. Whereas in other settings, people might say, can I do that? And then worse than that, they may say, can I do that over the period of months to get to a governance meeting where you say, you probably could, but could you come back next month and tell me more? Uh, so when, when that gets multiplied up across a number of different programs, you can see why in the very big companies, there's a stasis in trying to get decision-making. In these smaller companies, it happens really quickly. And so I, I want to make sure that in this environment, I never overlay that type of governance and that inhibitory kind of effect of saying, you've got to tell me first what you're doing. People here, they come up with ideas, they work on them, they come with the data and say, look at that. And that, that, that's fantastic. It's very invigorating. What's it like being a chief science officer and also being a CEO? Yeah, <laughs> two for the price of one, I think. Um, no, I think I was clearly when I joined, I was very happy to do the CSO part because that was right in my wheelhouse. I knew exactly what that would feel like. Sure, it would be in a smaller setting. But it was clearly good. I knew exactly what an R&D process would look like. I knew what projects had to do. I knew how to deal with the scientists. But then fairly rapidly I was asked, do you want to also be the CEO? And it took me a while to think about that because my, my real first instinct was, well, my, my biggest benefit is driving the R&D process. Um, but I had already been intrigued by the fact that uh, dealing with investors, talking to, to, to banks, uh, telling the story externally, I was enjoying and I was getting told, that's a large part of what doing the CEO piece is, and you're already leading the majority of the group, so why don't you, why don't you go for it, as long as you keep doing the CSO part. And so that's what I agreed to do, and I became the CEO and continued to do the CSO work. And it's been a perfect amalgam for me of two activities and accountabilities that I, I, I enjoy. So I can do this new thing for me, which is dealing with the external world, getting people excited about uh, the company, taking it through major, major transition points, like getting you know, a Series C done, going through an IPO, uh, at the same time being grounded in the science. So it's, for me, it's, so far, it's been uh, spectacularly enjoyable. You must every now and then pinch yourself and say, this is great. No, it is. I do. I, 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 do. I mean, I know, it's, you know things can change because uh, it is the world of R&D, but so far, it's just been, been great. Let's talk a little bit about the company. So I wrote this question, what's new at Arvinus? And I know that's kind of a long answer. <laughs> There's a lot of new, a lot of new things this year. Um, yeah, so this, this year has been spectacular. I mean, we started the year announcing a deal with Pfizer, uh, which was very exciting. A target-based deal, they give us targets we find the greatest for them. And it's a very good interaction with, uh, with Pfizer. But then we rapidly also moved into um, uh, our C round to raise more capital so we could invest in our pipeline, which we did successfully at the end of March of this year. We raised 55 million, brought on board some new investors. Um, and then, if you was um, the R&D pipeline is moving forward very effectively, the market looks quite good. Why don't we, from a position of strength, go out and maybe uh, do an IPO? And uh, so we did a lot of anal analysis on that. 
you know, talk to uh, investors externally and testing the water meetings. And the feedback we got was, yeah, even though you're preclinical, this is an exciting new modality. It's really worth pushing for the IPO and bringing in the capital that allows you to advance the company uh, rapidly. So then we spent several months uh, in a fairly intensive process, uh, uh, talking to investors or potential investors, culminating in the kind of the two-week roadshow, uh, which I'd heard so much about prior to, to joining the company. Um, and then a really successful IPO uh, last month. Um, and now it's put us in a position of financial strength. Uh, we can move our pipeline, our two major assets forward through into the clinic. We can move the rest of the pipeline forward, expand the, the platform. Um, and so it's given us a real uh, forward trajectory and a line of sight of where the next three years is going to be for the company. Um, so it's, it's been an exciting year. And in the process, that we've doubled in size. Uh, um, we've expanded in this building into two more floors, um, hired uh, over 40 people. Um, so it's been a great year. When you tell that story, it must be fun to just get up each day and say, I, I have another opportunity to tell this story. There must be times when you say, they got it. And there must be times when you hear them back after you have the presentation, you say, they didn't quite get what I was going for. Can you tell me a little bit about when you're saying it, this is what they're getting, and you're happy about that when you're saying it, and they're not hearing it? Well, I've also got the confusion of my Scottish accent, so I never know if it's the, the story of the company or just my my accent. But um, um, I think most of the people get the story. They, they understand the concept. But, you know, it's, it's the story of our technology is is, is not simple. I mean, what Craig, has, Craig Cruz has been doing is studying protein homeostasis for many years and really understanding how the cell naturally turns over proteins, how it monitors dysfunctional proteins, uh, how those proteins are tagged by the ubiquitin ligase system and drag those uh, protein, uh, proteins off to the, the proteasome, which is the, basically the garbage disposal unit of the cell. Proteins are then broken down into peptides, amino acids. Those are flushed back into the cell for new protein synthesis. That's the natural way the cell maintains a healthy protein balance in the cell. Craig observed all of that and wanted to hijack it. He's, he's saying, I wonder if I can bring that whole machinery into close proximity to a protein I want to degrade, I want to get rid of. And so he came up with these small molecules called protax, proteolysis targeting chimeras. One end of the molecule brings in this ligase machinery, the natural machinery of degradation. The other end of the molecule targets a protein you want to degrade. And sure enough, when those proteins are brought into close proximity to the ligase machinery, they're tagged and they run off to the proteasome and are degraded. It's just a wonderful technology. And now our, our lead programs for antigen receptor and estrogen receptor are moving forward. Uh, they're still at the preclinical stage, but hopefully all things being well will be in the clinic with them at, at some point next year. Um, so it's been a fabulous technology. As we explain the technology, some people do get it immediately and they say, this is fabulous. Others, it takes a little bit more time to explain it. But eventually we get there. It's, uh, I think it's a compelling story and a compelling platform. Is there anything you can say about the kind of people that you're finding succeed at this kind of culture you've built? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, so so what, when, I, when I'm looking for people here, first of all, you, you want high-quality scientists. You want really good scientists or people who understand their area, either be it development or um, formulation, you name it, really good experts. And we're lucky in this Connecticut base actually having a lot of really superb scientists available. The next thing I want is people who are just incredibly inquisitive, um, people who are inquisitive, they'll do the work, but they're always thinking of the connections. 
And in a small biotech setting, you want people to make those lateral connections all the time, to be so inquisitive about their work that they can add value above and beyond just their, their basic um, science. And we have a number of incredibly inquisitive scientists here. They drive the platform in different directions. They ask questions that uh, really probe the science. So, yeah, top quality science, but a real inquisitive nature. Um, and, of course, if they have the obvious ability to work in a team, then you've got the kind of the perfect uh, uh, collection of skills that you need to have a, a, a good scientist and a, and a good forward-looking team. So if, if that team you've built develops the way you hope it will, and if the company develops as you hope it will, what good can you do? What, what do you allow yourself to say, oh, if this all works out, we're going we're gonna to help some people? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, all the, I think all the people who move into science, and certainly uh, to the pharmaceutical area of science or biotech, they're all driven by a passion to get medicines that get to patients. And, and usually you find that where you talk to people and say, well, why are you in this part of science? And they'll talk about a family member or a friend who has a specific, uh, specific disease. And they say, yeah, that's why I'm doing this work. And we've just gone through Breast, we- uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And this whole, this whole building was full of people wearing pink shirts and, and uh, charitable events related to, to, to the breast cancer charities. But a lot of people talking about um, uh, friends and family members that had breast cancer. And every door had a, a pink sheet with the name of somebody that had been suffering or fighting uh, breast cancer. That's what drives people's passion. Um, and I think we've got a lot of really passionate scientists here. Um, and that's, that's really what you hope for. You're eventually going to get a medicine that gets to patients that have an unmet needs and you can help change their lives. Uh, and that drives people every day forward. And in this, in this particular community, you're closer, the scientific community, you're closer to that chance because you're going to be able to discover and develop in a very integrated way. Again, in a big pharma setting, you do get opportunities to do that, but it's usually another big team takes it, your asset goes there, then another team takes it, it goes over there. In this smaller setting, you can actually track it uh, much, much further. So that, that connection to the patient is much, much stronger. Let's segue over to the environment that Arvinus uh, is a part of. So how did you make that decision and how did the company you know, in general, make the decision to be here, here yeah. in New Haven. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I obviously wasn't uh, at Arvinus when they made the decision. The company was formed in 2013. Um, Craig, Professor Craig Cruz, uh, Yale professor, uh, came up with this great idea, this great concept of protein degradation. Um, he loves being in Connecticut. He loves Yale. Uh, this was his second company that he formed. His first company was actually formed and was, was set up in San Francisco. And I think he, he learned a lesson for himself, which is he wanted to be in much closer proximity to the company he set up. So he was determined to have a company set up. It would be, you know, very, very close proximity to him. And we couldn't get much closer. He's only five minutes up the road. So he's, he's in here every week. Um, and Tim Shannon uh, uh, with Canaan, uh, the VC firm, they're Connecticut-based as well. So it's a very good local uh, Connecticut-focus, uh, both from um, Yale uh, Craig Cruz and uh, Kane, and then we, they started recruiting in scientists that were based in Connecticut. Um, and you know, either good or bad, some big pharma companies have made decisions to either leave the state or downsize. And we've had the benefit of, of being able to attract scientists and leaders into the organisation that we're getting at a stage of our evolution that we wouldn't expect to get them. We'd expect those people to stay in the big pharma companies and have fabulous careers the, the way they normally do. 
where they've decided, okay, my company's leaving, but I'm not leaving the state. I love living here. And we've been able to bring them into our Venus, which has really accelerated our progress. But um, yeah, and it was a great, I think it was a great decision, obviously, that Craig and uh, Tim made to set the company up in New Haven. And we haven't seen a downside to it at all. How about personally? How did, when you had that time in between, you were deciding where you wanted to go and what you wanted to do. How did you decide that you wanted to be in Connecticut rather than, say, Cambridge or San Francisco? Yeah, I mean, so I've been, I mean, been living here for, for over 20 years, which I still find amazing. Because when I first came over from, from Britain, I thought, yeah, I'm gonna, this will be great working in America for a couple of years. And then you look back and you think, wow, that was 20 years ago. <laughs> I, but I've loved working here and uh, the opportunity that working in America gives you. Um, but, you know, looking at the, uh, the, the decision-making about being in Connecticut um, and why I would stay here, I love the environment in Connecticut. I love living here. Uh, if you want the big city access, you've got New York and Boston right on your doorstep. If you want to be in the countryside, you've got Vermont, you've got New Hampshire. If you want to be in the shoreline, you've got Connecticut, you've got Rhode Island. It's just a perfect combination of different small states. Uh, and some of them are hidden gems, you know, uh, which is great for me. I don't, I, you know, if nobody wants to go to these places on holiday, that's fine. But it's a fabulous place to live, to bring up a family. Um, and, and part of my drive is to be able to make sure there's a great scientific community that stays here. Um, as as, a, as a, an executive at Bristol Myers Squibb, when the company decided to move out of uh, Connecticut, um, I, I made the decision I would stay, but I also was very excited when I joined this company to be able to attract quite a number of BMS scientists who didn't also want to leave the state. And so we have a large number of ex-BMS scientists, we have a significant number of ex-Alexion scientists, we have Pfizer scientists, we have Boringer England scientists, we have ex-Bayer scientists. So we've when you look at the, 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 the try record and the histories of the staff we have, it's a little echo of the history of uh, Big Pharma in Connecticut. Uh, and we hope we'll be able to use the, the experience of those great scientists to build the, the scientific community here in New Haven and Connecticut. In terms of that community, just staying in touch, I know you probably don't have a lot of time as a CEO, but what organizations do you touch and, and communicate with? I'm thinking of Connecticut Bio as an example. Yeah. What, what organizations do you find help you to tell your story and, and help you to find out what's going on? Um, so so BioCT is one of the, the, the good ones. Uh, they are very focused on the, the, the um, scientific community within Connecticut, obviously the biotech community in a significant way. I've, lucky, I've been lucky to be part of that board for several years, and I think they do a great job explaining the story of Connecticut and, and New Haven. I think we can do more. I think uh, the story about um, Connecticut science and the biotech community is not as well known as it should be. Uh, you could argue, well, you're dominated by the fact you've got uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts right, uh, right there, and you've got a burgeoning New York uh, biotech community as well. But the, the, the science that's getting, taking place here in, in, in Connecticut is exceptional. And the ability to build on that backbone, uh, I think, is, is, is strong. Uh, and I'd like to see more of that happening. So BioCT is really driving that as a, as a kind of a, as a, a, an organization. And we, we need more of that kind of communication about the strengths. You're familiar with Connecticut Economic Resource Center? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been doing, I mean clearly we, we get a lot of support. We have had a lot of support from the Connecticut uh, State and um, 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 Connecticut Innovations. And so on. there's a company was was setting off had a lot of support from the, the state. Um, and I like the fact that the state is very um, supportive overall with, uh, with biotech. Um, 
Um, and so we keep, in, we keep in touch with those state organizations quite regularly. Is there any advantage or disadvantage to being here rather than in New York, rather than being in San Francisco, rather than being any place as far as... I, you know, I, have, I have to be honest. I, I didn't notice any real reaction from all the investors. We talked about the, the, whether we were placed here or somewhere else. We did get asked every so often, do you have plans to move to Cambridge or whatever? And we just said, no, we're, we're doing great. Um, but it didn't change anything in terms of the, the range or the depth of investors that wanted to invest in our, our company. It wasn't the location that's driving their interest, it's the science and the people. And they said that over and over. Good science with good people, that's an investment choice to make. And if it's in New Haven, fine. Uh, so we haven't found that detrimental. We've not had any issue getting access to really interested in, uh, investors. And uh, that's clearly shown through our IPO, which uh, was very successful. And I think this, this, this location is great uh, because of the environment we talked about. And there's some great scientists here as well. I just want to be able to build on it over the next few years. All right, I'll just finish up here and say thank you, John, for talking with me today. I look forward to coming back and hearing what's new next time. Thank you. Thanks for the time.